Welcome back to the Sim Geeks podcast. We are your hosts, William Belk and David Shablak. Today, we are joined by Christian Hansen, who's a special effects designer and artist uh, currently with Mayo Clinic up in Rochester. And he's going to come and talk to us about applying traditional arc techniques to medical simulation, as well as share his journey with us over the years and how he got to where he's at. So Christian, welcome. And please take a few minutes, introduce yourself and kind of tell us your background. Hi, everyone. Um, I'm Christian Hansen. I am a special effects artist, enthusiast. I've been doing production artwork for most of my career, twenty some years. So that's special effects and makeup and monster masks, all that kind of stuff. That's what got me into doing sculpture and art. I worked for about 10 years in the museum display business as a day job. So I did a lot of sculpting work and scenic display work doing that. And then in 2015, I got involved in doing medical simulation work as a freelancer. I did that for probably five or six years working on some intubation mannequin design and development. 2021 is when I got hired at Mayo Clinic's anatomic modeling unit. So I've been here since then. And I kind of started as a traditional artist with clay, mold making, traditional materials, acrylic paints, what have you. And I've moved on to, or I should say evolved into also doing digital modeling, digital work. 3D printing. Our lab is basically the 3D printing lab here at Mayo. So we're working, we're in the radiology department. So we're working with patients, anatomic data sets, and that's what we build. Of course, the clinical work we do, which I can get into, but the work I do is mostly simulation and education, kind of mixing my skills with the digital world and 3D printing. And you mentioned 3D printing, and we're big advocates of 3D printing, but we're in a different neighborhood of 3D printing than you are. We're kind of in the home level and you are doing like, just for a quick second, name the difference between your 3D printing and my 3D printing. Well, we have our, so we have a facility in St. Mary's Hospital. Dr. Jonathan Morris was one of the founders of this laboratory team. And so I work with several engineers, clinical engineers to do guides for surgery, planning models, and so on. But yeah, we're not we do have the kind of consumer type of printing equipment you have your fdm printers which is what i think most hobbyists start with that's what i started mm -hmm. with where it's technology it's extruding a heated filament plastic a pattern an xyz pattern you know, as it goes that's how it builds mm -hmm. up a model so you end up having you know some layer lines and then also the other thing that i think a lot of consumer level users have would be a uv cure resin mm -hmm. usually a DLP resin printer. So that's a printer where you're getting each layer cured by a UV lamp that is blocked by a LCD screen for each layer. So that's how it creates the pattern. It creates one layer at a time that way. Here at the AMU, we then have that equipment, but probably more of the, I guess you'd say professional or industrial grade FDM printers and resin printers. We have a whole array of the form labs SLA printers, which are using lasers to center, to cure the resin, drawing it out kind of the way that FDM printer does. And those are used for clinical guides that are actually sterilized and used in surgery for pre-planned surgery, jaw resection, pre-planned surgeries. So we have clinical arm that uses those. The other clinical arm is using Material jet printers. So these are the printers that Stratasys has available that work kind of like an inkjet printer, but it's using a UV cured resin. 
which you can pretty much do a full color print surface. So you can do CMYK, white, clear, all in one print. We also have SLS printers. So we have an mm -hmm. HP 580 that uses a nylon powder. So that's the kind of printer that it spreads out a thin layer of a very fine nylon powder, and it will use you a laser, some sort of an, an agent that gets jetted out. This one jets out color and centers the nylon. So you have a, a solid layer of this powder. So as it builds up, you end up finally with a block of powder where there's the model that's inside that block. That's really great for certain uses, especially we use it a lot for surgery planning guides. So anatomy guides where you're taking the CT image, usually it's CT, and then printing out 3D models to scale of a rib cage with a tumor at a certain place with the critical vasculature nerves that need to be preserved in the resection. To have those types of models for that are patient-specific for a specific case, it's been really useful for the clinicians here to help them rethink the way they're going to approach some of this stuff. It's so on, broadly though, the lab has pretty much the full array of what's available on the market on an, on an industrial level for 3D printing. Yeah. If you're not following Christian, you really got to, because the stuff he's doing is just amazing. So whereas he said, I have a couple of resin printers and I can print a one color, basic, sort of basically correct eye. He's printing full color eyes that are encased in clear and also with all of the veins of the eye, the iris and everything, printing it in full color and they're breathtaking. So not only just you're printing that model, you're designing, you're taking this digital and that's not where you started. Let's go back a little bit and talk about the types of materials and things you grew up on and talk about your, how you were a traditional artist. What are the kind of things you love besides pumpkins? Because I do want to talk about that too. Yeah, well, you know, I, I'm a Halloween fanatic. I love monster movies. I just saw The Creature from the Black Lagoon in a theater last night, as a matter of fact. Nice. Yeah, it's as good as ever. Anyways, but yeah, I'm, so that's the world I come at all of this from as a, you know, a Vangoria fan as a teenager. Yep. You know, everything. I'm into it. And I originally wanted, that was my career path that I was, or direction I was originally going in when I, right out of high school was, makeup effects, prosthetic makeup, props, movie effects kind of stuff. That's what I started my whole interest in art and education. So I, you know, I started off as a teenager doing life casting, uh, sculpting prosthetic makeup appliances. So that's where you're sculpting a clay, whatever it is, a zombie, a brow, or different life cast, making molds of that, and then creating latex or a foam latex appliance I guess then applied and blended in and painted. I didn't pursue the makeup part of things quite as much. I got more into sculpture, more into the technical mold making and the fabrication side. I always think that if I would have gone into the film world, I probably would be a shop guy, if anything. I really like sculpture. I think that's that's one of my best skills when it comes to all of this. I like painting. That's your favorite because everybody's got their niche. But I like entire technical process of mold making that yeah the, the casting design designing all of that designing these tools to make this stuff so that's just something i, I have you know an aptitude for and i'm really interested so yeah sculpture is really the thing that is what i've 
focus most of my efforts on making rubber masks, like latex rubber, silicone, a lot of silicones that I you know, got into pretty late, but you know, like around 2015 or so is when I started getting into silicones more, doing the simulation type work. So that's where I put most of my effort though, is in naturalistic sculpture. I mean, you know, the thing I always like to t- say when I'm talking to people about like what's the kind of mindset of a special effects type of person, aficionado or enthusiast, is we generally have a very high level of expectation when it comes to the types of work that's done. Like you really, it was pretty much a part of the, like the 1980s and 90s makeup effects culture that, you know, you're doing skin detail as detailed as humanly possible. It's the kind of the goal anyways, that we were usually set. And that's always been my goal to make things as realistic as I possibly can. Hyper-realistic. Yeah. So I'm, I'm big on realism. That's, that's something, and it's a goal, you know, I never feel satisfied that I've gotten there, but kind of like where my mentality, where I come, come at all of this. You know, David and I've been following you for a while. As most artists, it seems like if I'm following somebody who's in that space, it usually came from David. It's, he's one of those things that he kind of threw out there. I remember the first conversation that we had about you was when you got up there as far as that printer goes, because we looked at that Stratasys, what, six years ago, five, six years ago. And I mean, it's a wonderful machine, but at $330,000, you know, it's definitely not an entry-level machine or even a, a non-production floor machine where most of us are going to go the other route, even within our simulation centers. So talk to us about, I know you've kind of touched on this a little bit, but, you know, you talk about the materials you started with, started kind of that film direction, headed the Fangoria route, and then ended up in medicine. So where did that come about? What made you kind of cross over? If it was, was it just an opportunity or did you decide this is where you needed to be? What caused that? Yeah, I guess it's a little of both. I so I'm from the western suburbs of Minneapolis and never made that big move out to LA to really you know go full on you know various reasons. One of them was I wasn't completely sure about the stability of the field because of all the digital animation work, the CGI stuff. You would hear all these stories about how the the practical effects world was you know really struggling. So that was part of why I decided to you know go in a different direction. I knew I wanted to do something when it came to the artwork that would be simulating reality. I mean, that's that's really a big part of what drives my passion. For this. Yeah, so I went into the museum world for a while, and there is a lot of naturalistic and realistic sculpture that can be done and, and other kind of illusion-type work, making a rigid model look like it's soft fur or you know, something like that. But I really wanted to do more like human-based and uh, that kind of, and then I'm really interested in anatomy. I'm really interested in, yeah, in simulating, you know, human anatomy. <laughs> so I thought more and more about going into like anaplastology or something like that. And uh, there were a team of people in the Twin Cities, uh, Chris Ballas, who is a makeup effects artist who is based in St. Paul, and, and my Nate Corteau is another artist in the Twin Cities, and some other local artists. They teamed up with it with a group at the University of Minnesota to do a nat- very realistic simulation intubation simulation project development project so I wasn't working on that but I was acquaintances with or friends with all these people and would follow what they were doing and that got me thinking well simulation that's that's something I should you know explore and so Long story short, that branched off into a, a private company in Minneapolis, Seven Sigma, that uh, Nate Corteau was heading up that group doing a simulation development of an intubation mannequin. And so uh, Nate brought me in on that project, I mean, working as a freelancer for about five years, 
sculpting things and developing the molds, production work, all the whole thing. And I really liked the work. So that got definitely got me thinking if I could find a, you know, a good, stable, full-time job doing simulation development, modeling, and uh, that would be a direction to go in. But all of that was traditional, right? It was all, there was no digital. That was all, yeah. All still point. just keeping you in that d- traditional materials, right. hands-on, clay in your fingertips and all that. Yeah, exactly. That's that's a good point. Sometimes I forget. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, it was all standard. And but the other thing is we were, the U of M project did work with a CT scan of, I think, one of the people who was working with the project. or So they had segmented anatomic data set. They had models of this guy's, you know, surface and airway anatomy. So they were using that in tandem with the practical effects work to create this real, it's a very impressive mannequin. It's pretty, you know, it's breathtakingly real, you know, and it was a development prototype, say, I think it's like a DOD funded, you know, of course. uh, So yeah, when we, did kind of start off the Seven Sigma project with some with segmented airway models and things like that. But yeah, for the most part, there we you know we didn't have anything beyond that, uh, so we didn't really have CT things. So it was a, it was much more like artistically created, traditionally created model, kind of branching from there. Jumping ahead to working at the Mayo's AMU, I mean, it's the opposite. This or it's this is a place where there's so much patient data. There's so many anatomy, STL models and sets. To some degree, it's a matter of we have all of this. We have this huge library of patient data that we can use for education, but we don't have the. They had certain expertise in engineering design, but not the artistic side of that. So that's you know that's where I came in. Luckily, I had spent the pandemic, the time that I had off during the 2020 pandemic, learning. The beginnings of ZBrush, which is the one of the standards for a digital model. So I was able to get past the worst of the learning curve for ZBrush over 2020. Which that program has a, a monumental learning curve. So that was that's a huge hurdle to go, especially as a traditional guy transitioning yourself to digital. I mean, just getting your mind right on learning how to think that way. And and I mean, you know, with mold making and different things, you get that negative positive space, you get the puzzling and all that stuff, but this was totally different. And so I've got ZBrush Core. I've had it for four or five years now. I haven't done anything with it. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm fortunate enough that I, I, I think I got over the worst of that learning curve. And it is tough. I think it's really, I sympathize with anyone who is learning ZBrush because of the way it's structured, it's just not, you end up, without going into it too much, you end up, I think, kind of mapping it out in your head once you're familiar enough with what you, it's like, I would often compare it to going into pilots, you know, what do you call it? <laughs> the, the main, the main cockpit of a, of a seven, seven or something, you, you look all these buttons, dials, much. like, oh my, you know, yeah. but there's basically a few uh, levers and steering wheels that you use most of the time and the rest of it, you don't necessarily need to know right off the bat. Well, being a sculptor, it's like, we love new tools. We love new toys. I buy things, but I go back to what I'm used to. And I go back yeah. to the few and maybe you find something new, but there's the few things that you've been successful with that has worked for you and you go with. So that's kind of the way you, you approached it. Yeah. And I, well, I think I started to, as I, and one of the fortunate things for me learning ZBrush uh, over the last few years is 
uh, I did get to learn a lot on the job as I started at the AMU and started with doing things like making prints of anatomy models and then molding them and casting them so I could get back into the traditional world because I didn't really have a strong footing in digital mind. But it just becomes a necessity to learn. I just naturally learn as I go and as I you know, solve the problems. You, you know, I would learn some, I would have the question arises, well, how do you do such and such? And you realize, you find out, oh, okay, this button does that. That's hidden in a menu within a menu. And then eventually that becomes your go-to process. So you kind of develop your own workflow and you, you kind of map it out after I do anyways. I love that you said that because whenever I'm doing a class on, on like 3D printing or things like that, I always say, okay, well, what are the things you're trying to solve? What are the problems you're trying to solve so that I can apply the knowledge directly to something that makes sense for you? Because that's just how my brain works. Of That's how I learn things is I'm like, I've beat my face against Fusion 360 forever and I've gotten nothing out of it. I picked up the right <laughs> application with the right, you know, Shaper 3D I'm in love with yeah. and it's the best. I can do so much with that, but I still use that approach of what problem am I trying to solve? What am I trying to fix? So I love that you said that. Yeah, that's, you know, that's what I think it's how I've learned over. And I think also just being able to have the time available or, or being able to make mistakes, make something perfect right away, learn as go. When I look back at some of the models, I was just loaded up the new version of ZBrush the other day, and I was loading up some of my models from a year or two ago evolved to where now I think of a lot of these models more on the mesh level. Like I, I understand better how to control the mesh. And so, you know, you end up with a lot of artifacts and things just are messy when you're new to all of this digital modeling stuff where you have overlapping surfaces and all these weird things happening where there's a little hole somewhere in them. So now I understand better how to handle all of that. Um, so I look back at some of my earlier models and I'm just baffled at like, how did I ever get anything done? Because I didn't have a clue what I was doing. And I'll probably, I'll look back at myself now and think that. Um, While we're on this subject, you know, ZBrush, digital modeling, et cetera, David and I are hobbyists, right? We get paid for a lot of the work that we do, but a lot of times we're just messing with stuff. And I know both of us have a habit of downloading new software that we're never going to master or, you know, jumping into new materials and finding it solves one problem for us, but it's not something we're ever going to become an expert at, right? Or we really push it. And David's definitely got a lot further than I have into the sculpting and a lot of the creations he's done. I guess my question here is, what is your advice as far as making that leap into that digital sculpting or digital creation? Did you have coursework that you found somewhere that helped you out? Was it a small, pick a small project and focus on one skill and then move on to the next one? What is your approach? What would you tell anybody right now that says, you know what, I'm going to go home and download ZBrush. Where do they start? YouTube? Somewhere? I guess I, I always re recommend, there's a, I think taking on reasonable size projects, trying to keep it simple at first. There's some really core functional or functionality to ZBrush that one probably should master before moving on to, to more ambitious, <laughs> I guess, uh, goals. I went on YouTube. I got a lot of tutorials through there. And I'd be constantly pausing it and rewinding it, and trying to follow where which button the guy was talking about or what it. So I think there's, it helps if you're someone who learns by, if you're like an autodidact or you know you learn by tutorials and kind of following your own path. There is a really good intro to ZBrush by 
there's a website called flippednormals.com, I think it is. And they have quite affordable, like maybe $20. But they have a, some intro, uh, intro video in every single feature. And understanding that there's a small set of tools in, as probably goes for most software, that um, you're going to use a lot. And a lot of the other stuff you can kind of ignore until you get there and need to learn it. That's and I would say, yeah, I think that's that's a great point. I think that's true of almost every piece of software, right? Is you can very quickly get in over your head, but if you focus on learning one thing at a time, I think that's kind of chip away at it. And you said it, you look at where you were at a year ago compared to now, and you are an expert at this. You're an artist. And so there's all of us are gonna have a learning curve, but especially if someone's never used this before, they can't come in and expect to immediately be great at it. You brought 20 years of sculpting experience into digital sculpting. A lot of people are starting with just the digital from day one. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one thing to learn the software. It's another to learn sculpture. If you want to learn sculpture, buy a bag of clay and some, I like print media. I, you know, I say get some of the classic books on sculpture and portraiture and things like that. I think it's the same rules apply then as they're today as then. Learning how to to block out a form, how to look at things from the large scale. And then as you work your way down to getting into the details, it's like any field subject in and of itself. You could spend your whole life studying sculpture and never completely finish your, your learning. But if you can, if you learn the basics of sculpture and develops those skills as best you're able to, then the software like ZBrush can. And sculpture isn't necessarily the most important aspect of doing you know, definitely like simulation models and things like that. Because a lot of what you're, you're working with, you have those resources, you have the anatomic models there if you can get a set from a CT or something like that. So it's not all, you know, you're not always making something from scratch. What I'm able to do is manipulate models or elements that I don't have. If we need musculature for a model that we don't get from imaging, I can build it from scratch in ZBrush or what have you, because I have learned the software, but also I do have an eye for realism and, and natural organic sculpture, what have you. You've had some amazing projects in your short career in digital modeling. And what's your favorite one you've worked on so far? Uh, you know, I guess my big showpiece is this chest anastomosis trainer that that I built. I agree. It was probably like 60% practical. I, mean, I don't know. It's hard to say 50-50. But I did, I kind of have, a, I think, naturally created or developed a process by which I take the original uh, data set or sets and, you know, to get the, the foundational anatomy established in my model. And then once that's kind of locked in, then I'm building the structural elements, thinking through, well, you know, what is going to be needed for this to be a functional uh, you know, teaching tool or, or functional model. And then, so once I kind of go to the, that's go through that stage, I do some of the aesthetic work. And especially if I'm going to do things by hand, it's really just a sketch. Like on that one, this is the case. And then, it, then usually elements get printed, some molds get printed, but otherwise I'll get the clay out and start hand modeling elements too, that are going to be kind of coordinated or registered with the 3D printed elements, which are going to have the like a rib cage or whatever the anatomy is. Yes, that was a good project on a lot of levels that it, it looks really, it looks realistic. 
awesome. Yeah. yeah, it looks really good on camera, I think. And it's a really functional, simple trainer. It's nice. it's what it's for is to do to practice at anastomosis. So you're you're suturing two small artery and vein from a harvested uh, flap of fat tissue that has a perforator set of a artery and vein in it. That's harvested and then it's tied into the blood supply. That's basically I forget what it's called the epigastric or whatever the <laughs> the uh, the vein artery are that's right on the, the side of your sternum. That's what they'll use to uh, tie that blood supply into this harvested tissue to do a, like a breast reconstruction. A lot of times with simulation, uh, the person who the doctor requested that project here, she was used to working with sheet of cardboard with a couple of tubes on it and so on, which, you know, has its value. But what she wanted to study would be the compare that to working with all the obstructive elements of an actual surgical exposure and this, you know, even the retractors being in the way and the whole thing. Mm -hmm. So I took that and made as realistically as I could the various layers and the depth. And, and so, you know, we talked a lot about like how deep would the exposure be to where you're, you're, you're digging in there basically mm -hmm. to tie this vasculature together. So things like that. Yeah, that was a really good project. And uh, there's been a lot of things. The other thing I did, I think last year is I did this thoracotomy trainer where it was the first time you were talking about the, the 3D printing technology. And I could go into a whole story about this. But I had, since I started and I saw what these full color printers were capable of, we were, and we, as common practice at the Mayo AMU, we will print uh, pathology specimens. So pathology lab has some dissection or, of a, you know, a heart uh, specimen or something like that. And they'll photograph it, but they didn't have a way to preserve it past beyond that. And so Dr. Morris in conjunction with the company uh, MedReality, I think it is, developed a photogrammetry box where the pathologists, technicians, or what have you, simply can take that specimen, put it in this photogrammetry box. They don't have to be a technical wizard about it. It's basically like you put the specimen in, you hit play, and it records the object, and it creates a 3D model automatically kind of behind the, you know, the black box mm -hmm. and, and that gets sent to us and we will print it. So we we're printing pathology specimens for teaching all the time. And they're, they're really uh, impressive. You know, it's, you look, it looks like you're holding the actual specimen in your hand and even though it's a rigid 3d printed piece. Well, when I saw that, I thought, well, if it can print full color, there's must be some way to get color on. If I want to control something, if I want to make a model and hit like an eyeball, and I want color on it. it, must be some way to do it. I just don't know technically how to do it. And that's how a lot of my work has been. That's kind of my process is, hey, that looks cool. How do you do that? Yeah. We're, we're, <laughs> we're all watching your posts. I mean, so many people. So I remember when you were pontificating, like, I know this can be done. I printed an eye, but I can't print in color. I'm going to damn well figure it out. Yep. And you, oh, boy, did you not only figure it out, you made it breathtaking. It's it, well, we're going to put links to this stuff because it's amazing. I was, I was going to ask Christian real quick. Are you okay if we share this anastomosis model when we send this episode out? Cause this thing is insanely fucking detailed. For sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so I've got, 
the pictures of it up. If you don't mind, we'll share those out because this this thing's yeah, amazing. And the, the work that you did here is fantastic. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Going going from cardboard, like you said, I mean, I, I can the other thing I was thinking about is the reaction of that professor or the teaching faculty when they walked in and saw what you made has got to be you 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 had to have wished you had a camera recording the reaction because the reaction is oh. <laughs> Yeah, that was uh, Dr. Anita Mohan, who she's 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 now I think at Stanford, yeah. but um, yeah, she was a great person to work with, and uh, I was pretty thrilled that she got to have <laughs> out of her, yeah. you know, her idea for. A, and I love that you're doing the whole still taking the digital and the traditional because like some people are like, oh, I want to get in 3D printing and I want to do all of this, and really I find the unlock is taking those mixed mediums and doing some of it in digital and doing some of it in traditional with clay. And I, I, again, I'm doing tinker toys compared to what you're doing and to your level of talent, but I, I love when I get to do it too. So I can only imagine just, I just want to sit in the corner of your shop and eat popcorn. Just... <laughs> well, yeah, you know, I, when you, when you talk about the, the mix of digital and digital and 3d printing, I, I, one of the things that comes to mind is something that a lot of, I've seen a lot of special effects studios embracing over the last few years is um, is 3d printing molds so you know there's a there's a lot of talk about well you know something like well can we print silicone and and my attitude has always been like well you don't have to print the silicone or urethane or whatever it is you you can also use the printers to print the molds or to print one of the things i did is which i think i don't know i haven't seen other people do it is i would print a basically an inverse of what I want a silicone mold to be. Yep. So, you know, so having, I think also having a sculptural background and thinking in 3d, which is kind of how I think about designing things, I think in 3d. So the idea that I could flip inverse reverse and back and forth, knowing that process, I guess more intuitively maybe than some others. So, you know, like if I want a two part silicone mold, all I have to do is print the inverse of those two parts and then pour silicone inside those forms that are printed. And now I pull those out. Now I've got a two part silicone mold that seems together perfectly. And that's worked really well. Mm -hmm. I call that an invert mold. That's nice. I'm doing the pre-kindergarten version of what you're doing. You're in the PhD thesis. I've done a little bit of that as far as trying to flip it to a negative, print the molds because then, and I love it because it's well everybody's what can you print the silicone not right now maybe someday but no but why do you need to like you said is when you right. can just do that it's awesome i think i think too when it, when people are looking at uh, designing things with 3d printing in mind i think a good way to to look at it is is don't necessarily see the print as the final product you know everything doesn't have to come off the 3d printer and then it's ready to go. You know, you can make elements, you can make tools with the printer that you can use then for your final outcome. But you know, the, like if you're designing some kind of simulation model, you know, the printer can be a, a tool within that process. Like we're saying with this one, where you end up printing a mold and then you're closing that up and then you're filling that with the silicone material. That's your model. So I think it's really easy to get, I do it too, where you get stuck in the mentality that that it's a matter of digital model to printer to end. And if you can get out of that and see it as as a tool rather than the endpoint, uh, that can open up a lot of possibilities for design. So I will, uh, I'm going to 
kind of pull us back to the beginning again for a second. And anybody who listens to us knows that I ask this question of pretty much everyone. But one of the things that's true of all of us in simulation is we fell into this from somewhere else, right? Nobody like started out one day and said, hey, I'm going to go work in healthcare simulation at all. We all were clinicians or you worked as, as an artist before and you kind of ended up here. You know, one of the things that we need to look at going forward is how do we get people to see simulation as that destination career without having to take the crazy path to get there? So Christian, what's your... What's your thought process? What's your advice for, say, a, a newcomer, somebody who wants to be an artist in simulation or somebody who wants to come in? How do we get how do we get people like you to see simulation as the destination and not Hollywood? How do we get people to come here and see us as really the destination where they want to be? I guess one of the things that I've experienced is, you know, coming from the film effects world or, or that that kind of approach anyways, is and with my expectation of realism. One of the things that isn't doesn't seem to be a it's not a standard within the simulation world is an expectation of or maybe even necessarily a need for like high realism. So of course when you're doing visual work that's going to be like on film, everything needs to look realistic, and that's the primary. It doesn't have to be durable. It has to look realistic. You're trying to simulate reality visually, you know, for a camera. So when it comes to making simulation tools, it is a different mindset and a different goal. Of course, you're trying to make something that, that yeah, matches reality accurately, like more from an anatomic or, you know, medical point of view. Um, you're not necessarily, you know, things don't necessarily need to look photorealistic. You don't need to necessarily paint every face for a simulator. I'd love to, but that's not really what's the, the prime requirement. So I think there's a little bit of, and you know, the, the time involved and the expense involved in doing that kind of work too can be a barrier for sure. So I think that's one of the, I think, gaps between the type of skill set, someone who has the type of skills to do realistic modeling work and what is the demand currently in the medical training and simulation world. So it, it really, like with my position here, it really required an advocate. It required someone who would be Dr. Jonathan Morris here at the AMU, who he saw, I'd say that he saw uh, the work that was being done at Boston Children's Hospital. Uh, Andy Hosmer was the artist and engineer who was heading there, was part of that team, working with uh, Justin Raleigh of Fractured Effects. He did a lot of uh, film quality, like top of the line simulation models and, and trainers. You know, Dr. Morris saw what, and, and met Andy Hosmer, and that gave him the idea, or, you know, got him thinking, like, you know, that he wanted to bring that kind of work to his lab here at Mayo. So Andy Hosmer moved on to another another company, but thankfully for me, and I was able to get the position here doing that kind of work. But that's what it required. It required someone who had the vision to say that this skill set can be applied to. And what I do too, I should say, it, it does cross past, it goes beyond simulation modeling. That's one part of what I do. A lot of what I end up doing is, is really more like medical illustration modeling. Mm -hmm. So, you know, almost like 60 some percent of what I'm doing is more in that realm. So I'm not really working on simulation models and developing that all the time. So it's, it's a little, and I do think that's like the biggest, the best match or I guess field that would be applicable is medical illustration, medical modeling. I think that there could be a, a branch of medical illustration that does simulation modeling more explicitly, 
And I've, I've also found it kind of, I guess I find it odd coming from the outside, the medical world, that, that the standards for medical illustration, realism and accuracy are so high, but not necessarily with simulation. I mean, a lot of people use very lo-fi, you know, kind of like DIY uh, simulation models, which nothing to, not to disparage that, it is odd to me that that's not more of a standard in the medical field that you would have high realism, highly, fairly sophisticated, realistic models being a, a standard for training. So it's there's a cultural difference there that I don't think is really solid yet. So I'm hoping that the field will go in that direction more and will make it so it's a viable career for more people. There's a lot of talent out there. There's a lot of people who could make really amazing and useful simulation models. It's not just the artistry. I think also, you know, the design and the engineering behind it to make something that can be used widely and, and educate a lot of people. There's a lot of need for education for procedures that are commonplace, like in the United States, for example, that in other countries, it's very difficult to find that training or have those resources kind of going off on a tangent. Oh, you're good, man. This... I think there's a big need for it. As far as advice goes for someone, I think the way I got into it is I started making things and making models. And I didn't wait for someone to hire me to do medical models necessarily. You know, anything. I, I think you have to build things. You have to build up a portfolio of work. You have to understand what is required in designing something that's going to be used by number of people, what elements are going to be reusable stuff like that learning anatomy learning naturalistic painting and sculpture like 10 fields you know like digital modeling 3d printing cad modeling you learn it all i'm sure you'll be surprised but you sound like an artist right you're not going to get here working eight to five monday through friday like you're creating like you said you're building that portfolio you're creating stuff as an artist outside of what you're being paid for at times i think that's it and, and i'm gonna i'm gonna pick on you here because you brought this up multiple times today talking about realism and simulation uh david's kind of got on to me before because i've been very blunt with my opinion of how most of the mannequins in the industry look like and you know we do have friends of this show that are working on that right that are creating highly realistic even covers or masks or anything else or they're creating highly realistic mannequins that doesn't always play well with the technology that we need in simulation so if we're going that more you know quote unquote high fidelity you tend to have an ugly mannequin with a bunch of computers inside of it. There's not really a great looking mannequin that also matches that high fidelity side. Do you see that as the future? Do you think that's the next step? We've spent all this time getting the technology where we need it. Do we start looking at the realism next and the visual appeal? Uh, you know, it's hard to say. I'm not really sure. I do think, I guess if I was in charge, <laughs> if I had a gigantic budget and someone said, okay, you're going to, set the course of how simulation is going to be done. I would want people to be a team of people to be developing materials and techniques to simulate particular tissue types. So, you know, so, so having something that's a go-to of here's how you make muscle tissue. And we have formulations of materials that mimic muscle tissue very accurately where you could, and even and ligaments and tendons and so on, where like right now I'm mostly just using things visually, you know, using silicones and kind of standard materials that you, that any makeup effects kind of person or model is going to be using, you know, having like an array of much more sophisticated material development would be, that would take like a certain level of coordination on like a national level, probably. 
but I, it kind of baffles me that that isn't already, that hasn't already been done to a point where it's, it's just, it's just taken for granted. The fact that you don't have that in standardized yet. And maybe, you know, the 3D printing world, that's something that could possibly happen. I'm always looking at what's going on in 3D printing food. Whenever I see somebody do a story about 3D printing food, I keep thinking, well, if they're making some kind of synthetic materials that or some kind of edible materials that are supposed to mimic food textures and so on, I think, well, couldn't that be used for 3D printing some kind of simulation models or something mm-hmm. if you're doing like a mixed material print? So that's something to keep an eye on. I feel like it's really early in some way and in, in what's possible, I guess, when it comes to simulation. Because of course, there's the aesthetics of it, but then there's material behavior, there's the haptics, there's how those materials react to cauterizing and being cut. How do you get materials to act in a way that's close enough to the way tissue behaves that it, that it increases the educational value of using that tool dramatically? The ideal, of course, is that you would have the same, same subjective experience as a learner that you would if you were actually working with a patient. Of course, we don't want to be learning on patients as much as possible. You want to be learning on some sort of simulator or something. This is where David and I get quite hypocritical. So we've done a few moulage classes over the years. And one of the resounding themes that we've always hit on is, you know what? It doesn't have to look perfect. It doesn't have to be hyper-realistic. As long as it gets the point across in our setting, 99% of the time, that's perfectly fine. But also, I know from spending as much time as I have with David, he's always going to strive for that perfection, right? He's trying to get to that level all the time, whether he says you need it or not. The Paul Savage level. Yeah. So one of the things that I want, I kind of want to tie that back to, uh, you mentioned earlier that you worked for quite a time sculpting on a specific airway head. And I actually have those airway heads in my training facility. The emotional response that people have when they walk into that room to do airway training and they have that hyper-realistic head, whether it's the pediatric or the adult there is an impact that has an impact on people that a standard old school airway head like I learned on 20 years ago just doesn't have. So yeah, the muscle memory is there, the technology is all the same, but what you guys did, you know, with that hyper-realistic sculpt, you have realistic materials in there. I think it's mostly silicones. You can correct me on that if I'm wrong. Yeah, that's true. I see a huge amount of value in that hyper-realism. Sure. It doesn't apply everywhere in simulation, but it damn sure applies in that setting. And so And that's kind of why I asked you what the next steps are going forward. Do you feel like that emotional response or that emotional impact is is worth the added effort and value that you're putting into that work? For sure. I do. You know, I guess in in this field, be a matter of conducting official survey studies or something like that. And I'm sure some of that's been done. I'm not real familiar with like what the academic literature is on respondents' confidence, working on a realistic simulator versus one that is or mechanical design, it's design, we want to describe it. That's probably a matter of establishing that as something beyond being anecdotal. Of course, absolutely. That's not my area of expertise. Just intuitively, to me, having materials that behave where it's relevant and visually do look like the real tissue, I would. that's what I would want to train. If I was learning a procedure, I would want to train on some of something that is as realistic. So then, you know, if I had to learn to do a certain procedure, an emergency procedure or something, I'd rather learn on some sort of device or mannequin that would have all, as many features as possible as real tissue and a real body. But that's just my assumption 
that that's the case. And of course, you know, it isn't all about aesthetics. It's also, and I don't, I guess I, I don't feel like I'm in a position to be reviewing the the full world of market of simulation models. And so I'm sure there's a lot of great ones out there that are really useful. I think having things based on anatomic data where, where you can establish that this is accurate, having that accuracy, I think is, I would assume is quite important. I put you on the spot with that one, but I agree <laughs> with you entirely. And you're right. We know everything's going to be headed direction of, of research and publications and kind of get the answers. I know of several current projects that are going on looking at that now, specifically to Moulash. And I know there's been a few that came out of Australia a few years ago. So I know that that research is taking place. And so hopefully over the next few years, we're going to see that shift. And and we'll learn one of the other way. We're going to learn, hey, it really does matter. And we need to make all these super realistic mannequins. Or we'll get the research back and I'll say, yeah, they're pretty, but it doesn't make a difference. And so Christian's going to continue making his fancy (laughs) one-offs and everyone else is going to keep using the ugly guys. We'll kind of work through that going forward. But Christian, it's been... We're probably close to an hour that we've had you on the phone here now. I appreciate your time. What do you have as parting thoughts for the Sim Geeks listeners out there? Parting thoughts. Well, I guess when it comes to 3D printing, I think I always say that the the magic of it is really the software behind the models. It's the models that are really going to get you somewhere. If you want to pursue that direction, I think learning as much as you can in SolidWorks or Fusion 360 or some sort of CAD software to build structures, build molds. That's what I would recommend. Learning the you know, rudimentary digital sculpting, the basics as far as, or, or connecting with people who are artists, maybe freelancers, you know, who can take your, what you have as if you have anatomic data sets and build off of that, say, well, we need a musculature built or we need a certain anatomic feature here for a trainer that we're going to make. That's always an option too. There's a lot of artists out there who need work and aren't very talented. So that's something to consider too. You don't have to become artist, a sculptor, a high realism sculptor. There's resources. Out there. Lots of freelancers looking for work when you need something done. <laughs> it's a lot easier than trying to learn it all from scratch. Yeah. We don't need to grow it because f- you're going to do it once. Go with somebody that's got years of, of talent and pay them what they're worth. Yeah. So. I think generally too, find that to be the case that from my career coming into Mayo's AMU with a completely unconventional background and career path and being able to fit right in and contribute quite a bit to what the lab itself is generally capable of. I think that comes from bringing people from other fields together, which is, I think, really important. It's really easy for a field to get isolated and to lose connection with what's going on in other areas, like in the entertainment field, where there's, like I said, a a wealth of talent and expertise and technical knowledge, but it's used for video games. And if you can get some of those people involved in doing simulations, whether it's VR simulation or physical model designing, being open to that and bringing some people in and trying them out, I think that can be quite fruitful. All right. Well, Christian, we appreciate your time. When you know, I think we've been trying to set this up for a while. David's been talking about this for a long time. Thank you so much for coming out. We hope that we get you back on at some point and talk about a few more of these things going forward. Have a wonderful day. Uh, yeah. Thanks. I really appreciate the the time and and talking with you guys. Well, thanks for listening. We will see you on a future episode of the Sim Geeks Podcast. Good night, folks. <laughs>